Welcome back to the show. Uh, today we are joined by a very good friend of the program, John Lepp, uh, who's founder over at Agents of Good. And uh, John is here today to talk about his new book, Creative Deviations. Uh, we have uh, a lot to dig into with John, and we're thrilled that he has uh, agreed to come on to the show to talk about uh, this exciting project. John, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here again, and uh, we appreciate you making us part of your book tour. Oh, yeah, book tour. Absolutely, Dan. My my pleasure. I, I love I love chatting about uh, this nerdy stuff that you and I obsess over every day. I love it. Yeah, no, and you do a great job of really uh, kind of breaking down the the minutia, and I mean that in a good way of direct response and just how dynamic fundraising is. Um, you know, first thing I wanted to ask you is, I, I admire my friends and colleagues who've published, uh, whether it's self-publishing or, or whether it's through a publisher, um, just not just the idea of, of putting together a book and coming together uh, with the idea for a book, um, but actually um, figuring out the time to do it. Um, I do believe that books are still one of the best ways to engage in thought leadership, to get ideas out to the industry. There's just a level of of credibility, I think that comes along with it. So it is a great project for anyone who um, who does have something to say to the industry. Um, but because of the time involved, just can you walk us through the backstory here? Why did you feel this was the right time to write a book and why Creative Deviations? Oh, wow, good question. Um, I read a book when I first started my career 25 years ago, it was called Asking Properly, which I do reference in the book by George Smith as an English fellow. And, um, and it was a, it was a book that sort of shoved in my hands in the early days that taught me a lot about direct response and, and individual giving and donors. And then I, I kind of forgot about it really. Um, it, it always got stolen out of the agency library and stuff like that. And someone would buy a new copy and then get stolen again. Um, I am buying my own copy and like five, I think five years ago, I took it to the, on vacation at the cottage and, and sat down and reread it for the first time. I was like, wow so that's where i learned this and that's why i think this and oh like and all the mentors i had really referenced a lot of the same material and stuff and um i've been thinking about writing a book for for some time um but it's like everything in my career i wanted to make sure i was actually ready to do it like everything was really it was like speaking a bunch of other things that I could have written it 15 years ago, but it wouldn't have been half the book it is now. Now is the right time. And I had some really good encouragement from Ken Burnett of the UK and from Tom Hearn of the US who were like, you, you need to do this. And I just said, okay, I'm going to do this. So I outlined it, wrote my vision for it, shopped it around to a couple um, publishers in this sector. And uh, the one here in Canada was just like, we want this book. We will do whatever you want to do with this book. Uh, it is your book and let's let's do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do it. So um, yeah, that was kind of the, once I was green lit, then it was, I actually now had to do the, do the work. So last May, I think in a year, a month and a half, I wrote about 55,000 words as a first draft. Uh, and then, so a year later, the book is in the world. So here we are. And, and what are you hoping for fundraisers um, to, to, to come away with a uh, bigger picture after they, they finish reading it? And um, I do have to say that um, it definitely, definitely reads as if it was written by a fundraising copywriter. I mean that in a good way. This is a very um, scannable book. There's a lot of accompanying images. It's, it's a very easy read, but very information intensive, uh, which I, I assume was, was the idea. What are you hoping that fundraisers are, are going to take away from it? Well, I, that's exactly. I mean, I, I wrote it with all the same intentions that I that I coach my clients in terms of how we need to make great donor communications that are understood and can be acted upon. I mean, this would be all for nothing if I jammed into a little tiny book and black and white copy that was eight point type and just looked like a wall of gray. There was no way I was doing that book. It had to be a certain kind of format. And like you said, this is a very usable, practical book. It's full of lots of case studies, lots of little nitty gritty um, bits and bobs of information, tactics, techniques, strategy, it's storytelling, it's direct response 101. It covers the, if you do individual giving and direct response, 
Um, this this is a good book to have around, I think. And I, I'm not telling I'm not saying this because I think I'm amazing and everyone should buy my book. I'm doing this because I'm a teacher and I like to, the more we all know, the more we understand these things, the more we can do better uh, fundraising and comms at our shops. That means the more money we can raise for our causes and our missions. That means that we develop actually a better world with people feeling better connection to their work. That's my vision, you know, and that's that's what I want. So that's why we do these things and write these things. So that, that's that's kind of the intent is I just want to share these things that I know and I've learned from many others and just put it in a format people can sit down and actually, like you said, digest very easily and go, here's the next great idea. Here's a great thing I'm going to do tomorrow. I can change this right now and make more money. And that's that's awesome, right? Well, I, I was intrigued just from the title alone because creative deviations, deviations implying um, being different. And that's something that you and I have talked about uh, a lot is just the value in being something new and different to the donor and the role that plays in engaging them, getting their attention, ultimately getting them to make a donation. And, and I feel this is something we talked a lot about on, on this, this program is um, we, we do have what I call a case study culture in the nonprofit sector where um, when you come to somebody with a new idea that you're very excited about, maybe it's something that you have proven out in your own work that a lot of times the, even no matter how much enthusiasm there is on the other side of the conversation, the next question is, well, is there a case study for this? Is there a white paper? Is something that's proven out? And, and I feel that a lot of fundraisers um, are sitting on just a wealth of knowledge of anecdotal experience just from their own life experience. And at the end of the day, you know, how many people have have had a great test or a great case study that they just haven't put into paper. And you make a case right up front that this is not a book about um, ROI and statistics. These are real life examples um, and knowledge that you've acquired over your career. And I think that's just, it, it's just a, a cool and different spin on it that, um, that, that you're, you're, you're really just pre presenting the value of being different and standing out. And that's not something that we spend a lot of time um, talking about necessarily in this sector. We spend a lot of time talking about what's worked in the past and, and mm -hmm. case studies and things like that. Was that your idea? Um, was that your, your idea in, in the theme of creative deviations or was there something else there that, uh, that you were trying to present? I think we're always, people take comfort in definitives and checklists. Like if you do the one, two, and three things, this is what's going to happen. And I was very intentional about not, not writing a book full of definitive. This is nothing definitive in this book at all. I mean, what's worked through for me and for lots of organizations time and time again, you may find, may, you may find something a little bit different. That's the beauty of this, of this work. And there is room to test these things and try these things. But I mean, deviations is a softer word for a really bad word in our subject called innovation. And I'm not, I'm talking about little minor things you can do 80 or 85 or 90% of organizations are all doing exactly the same thing. You can, you can see me right now, Dan, and what I'm holding up to you right now is a big veil. This is my, this is your donor's mail. This is something I just got from her recently. This is probably full of about 200 mail packages. And I can tell you 90% of it is exactly the same from the outer envelope straight through to the reply form. And it takes only a minor change Doing a different size envelope is a minor deviation from doing whatever else is doing was a number 10 envelope. And there's this room in this work all over the place for these minor deviations. They're not scary. You're not being innovative. These things are tried and tested. Everything in this book has been tried and tested over and over and over again. And I've seen them work over and over and over again. But some things are just being human. Like just be a freaking human to your donors because they're humans. They want to help you like normal humans. And we get in the way of appearing human to our, our donors and stuff. And again, the book taps into that, that fear and how you have to address that and how you can address that in this work. So um, I forget the original question. But yeah, yeah no. it's intentional. It's not that intentional. No, and, and you talk about that right in the foreword about moving away from thinking about donors as these abstract group of statistics and thinking about them instead as moms and grandmothers. And uh, you, there's an, a, a quote here from the foreword um, we might slow down and think about what we are doing, what we were asking for, and how we are going, how we are going to, or how we are going about those things uh, in reference to uh, thinking about our donors as, as moms and grandmothers and, and individuals instead of these, these big overlapping groups. And 
Um, I think what you just said is, is part of that, is that when you think about an individual or even just ourselves going to the mailbox and you see a lot of sameness in there, um, that's, that, that's a different way to think about the mail because it is so dynamic and there are so many of these little things that, that you need to, uh, that you can test. Uh, can you just talk about that thought process a little bit and kind of bringing back the donor and thinking them to individuals that we can relate to in our everyday life and maybe moving away some of the broader ways that we, we discuss uh, donors and, and charitable givers. I, when I start working with new designers or other fundraisers, the first thing I try to do is, is to get them to stop just like checking a box. Oh, I have to do an envelope. Here it is. I have to write a letter. Here it is. Like, and I look at stuff that I look at writers have written and designers of design. And I see people who are just like, they're just like, they're not thinking about their work. So my designers, my creatives, I'm always trying to think about what you're, what you're writing. Think about how you're designing around this. Think about how your donor is going to move through these pieces. Acknowledge the fact that she is probably 65 years or older. Acknowledge the fact that the easier you can make it for her to read it, the more likely she's going to understand it, feel really good about herself, and take the action you want her to take recognize the fact that she's got her own life with many things going on and why is she taking the time to sit down with your piece? What are you doing to honor her? What are you doing to make sure that she's, she's going to, you know, spend five minutes with this and feel really good about the fact that she wasted five minutes of her life on this. Think about these things. Don't just check the box. Don't just like we, you know, Din, I've talked with lots of people, but our sector is so focused on definitives process, you know, like timelines, these things are, are dictating and pushing uh, actual creativity and storytelling in ways that I don't like and, and don't do. I refuse to do it just because of a timeline that says I have to get the, the letter over to the, the charity by Monday. If it's Friday, it's going to be Friday because that do, I needed to talk to that donor. That doesn't, I'm not going to, you know, process isn't going to change that, you know. So I need people thinking about it because this, this is a creative art form. It's a, it's a very interesting, nerdy, obsessive, weird um, thing. Uh, and the more people can understand about it, I think the more they can connect with it. And again, the more they enjoy their work because it is just so fascinating. Humans are fascinating. Behavior is fascinating. And when you're fascinated by this work, you know, it, it just changes our relationship and I think creates better, better work that our donors are getting to interact with and give to. I do want to do justice to that passage because I don't think I did it um, moments ago. Um, but the exact passage from the foreword is to do direct response and individual giving appropriately, just as in our real life relationships. You have to acknowledge where you, your organization, and your donors have come from. Where you and your donor and our world is at right now, where you and your donors are going together and separately. If we stop thinking about donors as detached from the everyday work we are churning out and instead think about them as our moms or grandmothers, we might slow down and think about what we are doing and what we are asking for and how we are going to go about those things. So is that is this as simple as thinking about your mother or your, your grandmother and thinking about what's her everyday experience like with the mail and the organization she contribute to and and, and trying to personalize it on that level, is that a helpful exercise for, for, for people who are trying to get back to the, the, the personal nature of what, what connects with people in, in the mail? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a start. I'm, we all have, everyone I think I've ever worked with, I'm pretty sure are all humans. No, none of them have been robots, but I wonder sometimes, you know, like I, I people know how to do this in real life. We know that you know, we may meet someone tomorrow uh, that we like, we share stories for in one capacity or another, therefore we're sharing our values as humans with this other person. We're doing it in an emotional manner uh, with an emotional range through conversation. We're connecting with one another. Um, we're occasionally asking for, for help or checking in to see how things are going, acknowledging the, the things they're up against in their lives as much as the things we're up against in our lives. This is a natural development of a relationship. I'm not saying all donors want to become your best friend or anything like that. But, you know, in real life, we understand that I have to, like, with our spouses, with our friends, we have to do things sometimes to remind them how important they are to us and how meaningful they are to us and do little gestures as well that, that can, show, can show that stuff. So we know in real life how to show love for people we care about all the time. But then also you walk through these doors with a logo on the front. It's like, oh, no, we can't. We couldn't possibly do that here. And I, I'm just saying, I'm suggesting that you can. 
I'm suggesting that we, we do have a lot of fear in the sector of appearing to be normal humans who do mess things up every so often and actually need other people's help to fix it. And how, like, and people say that's unprofessional or again, there's lot, lots of things that are thrown around. I'm just like, what are you doing? You like, you get COVID showed us that, you know, organizations who couldn't really quickly change their, their tone and their messaging and for once really be truly vulnerable. Like, oh my God, we are freaking out because of this pandemic and we really need help. There are some charities that don't, that are not existing right now. They're well, there, there's an ongoing discussion about how do we be more authentic? How do we be more human with our donors? And I think one of the best ways to do that is to not be afraid to be vulnerable, to express to the donor, um, not just how much you care about them, not just how much you appreciate their help, um, but how much you need them, how vital they are to your great work. And I think vulnerability is still one of those things that even though I, I think we've moved in the direction more of, of appreciating human sounding content, whether it's in direct mail or email, and the fact that, you know, something that looks like it came from your mother is, is more likely to get open than something that looks like it's commercial and mass produced. Um, still that, that, expressing that vulnerability is something that a lot of organizations struggle with. I think for the, uh, not, not to get too psychological here, but for the same reason that it's something that a lot of people struggle with is that um, it requires a lot of internal color, uh, courage to open up and, and to share your vulnerability with someone. And, and that's something that you're right, it kind of goes against best practices that uh, it's not professional or we don't want the donor to think that we're weak, but donors, um, I don't think expect perfection. And I think we see more and more that they do appreciate these human relationships, which at least come close to replicating the types of relationships that they have on the outside world. Um, I do wanna dig into the devi deviations because they are fascinating and what you've um, decided to focus on. There were 12 of them. Um, we, we may not necessarily go through all of them today. And I do wanna get to the highlights and the things that you think are, are are super important for readers to take away. Um, but I have to say that the first one really kind of captured my attention off the bat. Deviation one is forget about your logo and you talk about the myth of branding. And I feel like right off the bat here, you're getting to the heart to a lot of internal debates uh, between fundraising and communication folks inside nonprofits about what the value of brand is. Uh, what is the organization's brand? What does the donor think of our brand? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and the decision so so early in the book to to downplay the importance of branding? It's funny because the the actual original first chapter was about envelopes because I'm a direct mail guy, right? And and anyways, in direct mail laughs because that's where you do start is the other envelope. And I thought, oh man. <laughs> I'm going to lose a lot of people if the first the first chapter they look at is all envelopes. Um, I'll lose all the, the direct marketing people immediately. So I made a switch to start with talking about the importance or lack of importance around your, your brand. We get so tied up, and this still kind of relates to your earlier point, we get so wrapped up in some of these like comfort zones or like professional bubble wrap, like things that protect us from being judged too, too heavily. And branding does that. I mean, I think we feel like we have this professional entity and we represent a certain way. We use only certain sort of images, these certain kinds of things. Our tone is always a certain way. We come across as very much in control of ourselves. This is all a lot of bullshit, which just drives me freaking crazy. I've tested, I've seen logos actually ruin your direct response. Sometimes like, I know what this is and I'm not gonna open it. And so I kind of look at mailings again, anecdotally through results and make a decision. I'm actually gonna leave the logo off of this and instantly raise more money and says something really interesting to me uh, um, when, when you do that. But you're, at the end of the day, your brand is how people think about you when they, when they do see your logo in their mail pack. The moment they open their mailbox or go to the doormat and they see that there, they're thinking something. There's a story they're telling themselves and I, I see, because I even look at Dale's, I see Dale's, my mother-in-law, but she's your donor. And I look at you and she writes, she's getting very good at writing lots of commentary on all of her mail packs. And she says, historically said things, I already know what's inside this. I just, I just gave him $100 anyways, because I don't like to read the letter. It makes me cry. You know, or this is a this is a food bank, and I know there's neighbors around here, especially Mr. Smith, who's a couple doors over. I know they struggle with food, so I, I'm going to make sure he can get some help if he needs it. She's got a dialogue of what she thinks about your organization every time she sees a mail pack, and we do that in our lives all the time. The restaurants we go to, the the cafes we attend to, 
So it's not about what you think. You think you're in control of that. You actually aren't. Your donor's in control of it. And my concern is that we're not leaving any space for the donor in that story. We think that our story exists without them. And we don't create space for them to be a part of a part of it, the part of the success. It's like, we do this, we're amazing, we're awesome, and here's our professional entity. So again, I'm that's a real big nutshell. And I, I piss people, marketing comms people off all the time. This book is as much for them as it is for development people or just designers. Um, because there's a lot of things you need to understand. Dan, our work as fundraisers, if we don't raise money, we get fired. Uh, someone um, opening an envelope alone isn't a metric for success. It's getting the gift, right? And so a lot of marketing comms is about that click-through rate, that just opening the envelope. That's not a metric that's useful for me, you know? So I have to make sure that everything we do is gonna help secure and make a gift, but not, not at any cost, but because the donor really, really wants to do it because they really feel like they're doing something important. So branding is so important in that, in that context. Yeah, and that definitely is um, something which impacts fundraising because uh, it's not an unusual situation where what is effective at communicating with the donor, evoking emotion, evoking a response may not necessarily be um, what you would teach in a, in a public relations class or consider to be best practice. But um, I'm almost hearing that you see that um, the, the type of branding that you're talking about is the outbound branding, the type that we're telling the donor, this is what you should think about your organization. Is there another role there for marketing and comms to be uh, essentially soliciting feedback from donors say, well, what do you think about us? How do you perceive our brand? And is that a more donor centric way to go about branding? Um, is the trouble that we're telling donors what to think too much in, instead of asking them what they think of us? I don't know. I mean, do donors, do donors care? I mean, do they really care? They, they're thinking of the cause first and foremost. This organization, don't give a shit about the name, don't care about the freaking logo. I know they do this. I know they exist to fix this. It's every organization in the world, 48 hours before they were founded, there was a group of individuals or an individual just like, right, I can't take this anymore. I don't want to live in a world where this is a problem and I'm going to fix it. And this is what I'm going to do. And they're like, hey, I, I think that way too. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, I do too. Okay. Let's work on this together to fix this problem. It's just a basic fundamental expression of your mission. That sort of unique reason to give why, why you exist. Donors are thinking about that. They also visually think, Jeff Brooks calls it like the visual icon. Understanding the, which isn't something we play a lot with here in Canada, but I think in the US, I see it a bit more. But what is the visual representation when I hear food bank? What do I think of? What's the visual thing I think of? Mm -hmm. And you need to know what that is and you have to use it everywhere. And it usually is counterintuitive to what you want. You want the, to, the visual kind of be something this, but you don't think something very, very differently. And it's really about what they think and feel when they see and hear your organization. That's what you have to tap into because what you think it is and you're trying to control that isn't going to change their minds. It's like trying to educate donors on the cause. They don't want to be educated. Interesting. They, they, they want to know what the $50 is going to do when you ask them for it. Interesting. And, and such an important point because um, a lot of cool things can happen when um, direct response and marketing and comm are aligned with each other and essentially working towards the same goal and not competing with each other for different messages. So really a, an, interesting, an interesting theory off the bat and kind of turning some things on, on their head, but uh, definitely thought provoking. Um, uh, the second deviation, um, which you know would have grabbed my attention as number one, being a direct mail geek myself, is the envelope. And this is something that you talk a lot, we've talked a lot about in your uh, prior appearance on the show, is just how critical of a role, not just the envelope plays in getting the open, but kind of setting the stage for the donor's expectation and uh, their experience reading the mail piece. Can you uh, give an over, you cover a lot in the second deviation, but can you guys give an overview about the importance of the envelope and um, aspects of the envelope that fundraisers should be looking at for potentially improving. Yeah, and and anyone who's heard me speak before talks about how I, I could talk a long time about envelopes if anyone would let me, but so far no one's no one's given me the airtime, so I can't. So um, you know, the most important thing is again acknowledge what your donors are getting. Eighty to ninety percent of the envelopes, things are getting in their mailbox are in white number ten envelopes. 
with a logo. The one, the envelope you have holding your hand right now looks like has a logo top left hand corner, has some sort of tagline or small image that gives a lot of what's inside away. Um, and that's what most organizations do. At the very least, acknowledge that's what most organizations do. And if your donor's getting between 30 to 40 to 50 appeals in a day, how are you standing out from that? So that's the premise of the whole start of the conversation. Let's just not do that as a deviation, okay? Can we say we're gonna do something a little bit different? And so it talks about all the different, different tools you can play with in terms of different sizes, different stocks, different fields, use of images, use of taglines, all these different things you can play with and think about postage, windows, lots of things, just to kind of go, oh, right, there are lots of, things I can do. So the other one looks so important. I know if I know if I mess that up, that doesn't matter if Tom or Herm wrote the letter or or anybody, Jen Love, if it just doesn't get read, then then the donor's not going to do anything. So I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility. I have to get it right. But I do I do give the the reader an out. You know, I can tell you from testing and it's been tested exhaustively, especially from our friends in the UK and Australia, that um, a nine by six envelope um, with just the logo and return address, uh, will beat almost any other envelope. Okay, so oh, at the very start, when I do an envelope, I at least start there. But I try to go, I try to go a bit further and think about some of these other tools. But again, if you if you're really nervous about doing anything, just stop using number ten and start using a nine by six. And at yeah. some point, if people are really listening, everyone will start using nine by sixes. And actually, funny enough, anecdotally, it seems like the, the, I'm starting to see more than I used to. Um, and I'm not saying people are, are listening to me. I'm just saying I think people are taking that idea like, wow, there's a lot of number 10 envelopes. So again, the, the chapter isn't exhaustive. Again, it's just an overview of just different things you should consider because everyone still mostly is doing it the same most of the time. Um, especially now with paper shortages, supply chain issues, there does seem to be a lot of hoarding of white number 10 envelopes because they're the most available, they're the easiest to get. And uh, maybe more so than ever before, it does seem like the mail is a sea of white envelopes. So if you're able to, um, there may be some more planning that goes into it because of the paper situation, but if you are able to test something different, um, a lot of value in being that. And certainly you don't still see, even you know, me looking at you know, hundreds of seeds a month, um, I don't see a lot of uh, nine by sixes or six by nines uh, so there is a lot you can do when you dig into it. And what I really like about your focus on the envelope, John, is that um, you're bringing home a conversation which I feel like has been certainly started on the digital side of the industry because innovation and optimizing offers are so critical to making digital work and making those incremental improvements. I feel like direct mail has gotten uh, left a little bit behind in that conversation, but what you do here is just in your chapter about envelopes alone, you break down how many dynamic components there are with envelopes, stock, taglines, images, creating a sense of mystery, a lot of A-B testing. Yes, it's not immediate. You have to wait a few months to figure out if it worked, but there is a lot of optimizing that can go on with direct mail, and it all starts with the envelope. And I think the fact that you're making that case, uh, it's a lot of tangible takeaways for fundraisers. Um, I did want to ask you about your third, because again, you're not afraid to uh, kind of say things how they are, and you're not afraid to take on sacred cows in the business, but your third uh, deviation is that storytelling is dead. And I'm really interested to hear um, you break this one down because that seems to be, uh, have become the best practice in the industry, so to speak, is focus on storytelling, focus on storytelling. Um, why do you think storytelling is dead? And, and what did you mean by that? Uh, yeah, and so, yes, so when you get into, obviously, a giveaway right with them, I'm, I'm not actually suggesting that there's no room for storytelling at work. However, what I am suggesting is there's still a lot of things at play. Unfortunately, you do have a lot of conferences, uh, one conference especially that I've been to and I love very, very deeply that focus purely on storytelling. And again, in my coaching, I'll get people to send me the letters to look at. Strangely enough, nothing else, but just the letter. And it sometimes has a not bad story, um, but it's missing a key component of a direct response piece or fundraising in general, which is actually asking for something. So again, in through the book, I lean on just some of the basics of direct response and direct marketing, which is first and foremost, your list is super, super important. If you don't have a good list of people who don't give direct mail, then forget about doing direct mail. You're, 
it's a waste of time. And it seems so obvious to people like you and me, Dan, but a lot of people are like, what? I'm like, yeah, we're like, who are these people on your list? I don't know. Where they come from? Not really sure. I think we had an event a couple of years ago. I'm like, well, you're dead in the water. <laughs> you're, you're already behind. And then so like, even if you have a good list, the next thing is your offer. The importance of actually having a clear offer. And I always share the classic direct response offers. Give us $7 now or the dog gets it. And that is a classic direct response offer because I understand what the problem is, which is the dog's going to get it. I don't want that. I understand what the solution is, which is my $7 will make sure the dog doesn't get it. That's awesome. The action is, which is give us that $7. And the urgency is give it to us right now so the dog doesn't get it. And every appeal has to have, every direct response, every finder's piece has to have some semblance of that classic offer. And I say to charities, what is your dog? And how much do I have to give to make sure it doesn't get it? You need to do that work. It's not my work as a donor. Um, and you may say, oh, we don't have that. That's also not my problem as a donor. These are, these are definitely you problems. But if you can formulate the classic offer, then again, you don't need a good story because the, the problem is so obvious. And what you need me to do to help make sure that, that the problem is solved is so obvious. If you can wrap a really good story around it that highlights that, again, we connect in a different way now to the problem. It's not just like, here's the problem, here's the solution. You're sharing a story that really shows the, the problem or the solution in action. That makes me feel something a bit more emotional. But I've, I've done amazingly, tremendously effective appeals without having any story whatsoever. And again, I share that in the book because I need people to rethink. It's not just about story. Story only plays a certain kind of role. And that's the plays a role in the creative. But there's far more important things that at play as it, as it relates to a direct response piece. Is part of it that this uh, either or mentality where we feel we either need to focus on um, a really powerful individual story, which we understand the value of storytelling, why it why it's effective, or focus on um, the value proposition of giving to our organization, that those types of things are, are separate. Because I've seen a lot of instances where organizations which have chosen to invest in longer letters may use a story as a hook, but then they transition into the story of the organization, essentially, and they combine the emotional impact of a powerful story with a institutional appeal to give additional layers to the donors and give them additional reasons to give, um, does it need to be a choice? Can those two approaches be easily married into a single letter? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think they're really the most classic ones really are, but again, the art of storytelling, um, it, it is just that it's an, it's an art form. I mean, sometimes our writers are given, here's the notes from the program person. And it's like very journalistic and it's capturing so-and-so did this. This is what happened next. This person got sent to this thing. And it's like, okay. Or we've sat in the interviews that, that people have run and their interviewer is just going, okay, question number one is blah, blah, blah. And the, the person answered it. Okay, question number two is blah, blah, blah. Okay, question three. They're not actually actively engaged with the conversation. They're just like, all oh, right, I to, I've got four questions I'm going to ask you and then I'll let you go. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's an art form to actually, in our work, if you ask emotional questions, you get emotional answers. So when you're doing interviewing, you want to be asking emotional questions to get emotional answers which helps create an emotional appeal but we also like to ask emotional questions of our donors like we ask and as you saw we talk about adding space in your appeals for letting donors talk to you right it's something we do a lot of because and we ask a simple emotional question not what do you think the most importance of food security in 2020 and what the government should be doing about it no 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 it's just like who do you think of you know when you're giving to the food bank or who do you imagine you're helping and let someone tell you a story about what, what they think about that stuff. So I'm getting a little away from your question, but I'm just saying that they're, they're, these things are all art forms. There is a lot of, there's not, you got to get rid of the process a little bit and focus on the art form of this work and move through your work emotionally and intelligently and thoughtfully. Think about what you're doing at every little, every design element, every question you ask, every checkbox you put on it, every word you highlight in bold. Think about what you're doing because they actually have tremendous impact on the response, the, the thing you want the donor to do. 
Again, people are just like, okay, I included that. Yeah, I got that. It's going on time. You know what I mean? Like it's too much of that process, process stuff. So that's underlining. But a lot of, I think a lot of sectors found ourselves in a spot because we've leaned into the process in ROI, the safety of checklists, because you can't argue with data. And there, there's room to just like real life. I don't run my real life based on data. I run my life on feelings because feelings are stronger and create something more more meaningful and deeper. And there's a lot of different ways to test presenting this information. You can have a, a more of a straightforward letter that addresses um, the problem and the solution and the reason to give, yes. and then put the donor story into a, a pub note. Um, you can try the opposite way. There's a lot of different ways to, to try to get that information across and figure out what's gonna be ultimately capture the, the most um, most in the way of donations, but I, I think your your point is that storytelling is it's a tool in the toolkit, but it's not going to um, it, it, it it's not a magic key, it's not a silver bullet. Um, just going out and compiling a bunch of great and powerful stories about beneficiaries is not in itself going to turn your 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 fundraising letter into a into a gangbuster appeal. No. Sorry, sorry, Jen Love. Sorry, Tom or her. No. <laughs> um, what other deviations are you getting um, a lot of feedback or, or good responses to uh, as you've been out talking about the book and, and talking about these concepts for as long as, as you have? Um, I think that the other really key ones, there's, there's the use of voice and voices. There's a chapter about like all the small little things, like really, really tiny, like, like talking about paper clips and stamps seems like, why was, why is that here? But actually in the context of the whole thing uh, has, has a space and legacies is another one, especially for our friends in the U S um, you know, Canada, we're trailing the UK probably about 20 years as it relates to good legacy fundraising. I would say the US is even another 20 years behind that, you know, and totally from what I see. So it's that that chapter alone, I mean, the book will cost you $50. If you follow even one thing in the book and you get one gift of $40,000, I would suggest it was probably worth the, the $49 for the book, wouldn't you? I mean, it, it alone could could completely transform and will transform your, your organization. Again, I'm, I'm not telling you this to sell books. I'm telling you this because it's just, it's true. It will just make that kind of that kind of difference. But those are the three ones I, I really like. The, no, and, and actually that was another one that caught my attention. Um, I didn't want to just run down the checklist here, but that was definitely one I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, it's all the small things. And here you... Um, break out in a very tangible way. Again, all of these uh, seemingly minor components of a fundraising appeal, which you can look at and test in some cases have a very uh, strong impact. I agree. I'm a big fan of paper clips because it sends the message that a human being touched this. And even if they didn't really, it still, uh, I think, evokes that sort of response that, hey, this is different from everything that I've received that's clearly automated. I, I love if you have stamps in your package, or even if you just paperclip the uh, reply card to the letter. Um, I think that's just a really cool, easy thing, relatively low cost uh, thing that you can test. Um, you, you sh you, we've talked about this before, but you've shared the example about coffee rings and smeared ink and it, the, the value in human imperfections and the message that that sends uh, when the donor reads the letter. Um, can you just touch on that a little bit? Because that, that seems to be a theme which runs through a lot of your ideas is humanizing the message and just making, reinforcing the fact that, that, that this was uh, something that, that was in a human hand at, at one point and really embracing the imperfections that come along with that. Again, it does go back to the idea of the original idea of branding and stuff and like the, the perfectional, per, per, perfect world we live in where everything is, looks good and is even and is typeset perfectly all the time, all over the place. And so computers don't, theoretically, don't make mistakes. They don't do imperfections. They, they, computers don't know how to insert a paperclip onto a letter. They can't, they can't do it. So these, the, they're all these imperfections and a paperclip isn't an imperfection. It introduces a signal to your donor. And again, in the book, there's lots of things I talk about, like um, that you're introducing 
different parts of your donor's brain to actually get involved in a piece. Do you know what I mean? And when you, when as humans, we see something not perfect, we have to look at it to figure out what's wrong with it. And then like, how did that maybe happen? And like, what's, what's going on here for this to happen? Like, you know what I mean? Like it gets us involved in things in a different way. And then if we feel bad, we feel empathetic for whoever fucked this up in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Like, and like, oh my God, I need to help them because we want to help if they, you know, especially if there's something we can't help fix and stuff like that. So these are all little bits of humanness in our work. And again, everything, like you said earlier, Dan, everything, so much just works so commercial and cold. Well, you know how this is true. Um, any fundraiser who have ever had the experience of sending, of, of having made a mistake in a mailing and then sending uh, an apology follow-up that asks for donations um, will likely tell you that that follow-up um, did remarkably well. I've seen that in my own work. I've, I've, I, have a, I work with an organization who um, sent out a DVD mailing, so very expensive uh, high-end mailing where the DVD company burned the wrong video onto the DVD and they then had to send an apology follow-up uh, with the correct DVD. And that ended up outperforming what they had projected for the original mailing. And it's just that human, oh, that, you know, they made a mistake. They're saying, hey, we're sorry about this. We're making it right. And just the power of that. And um, I, I, people not only are understanding about human imperfections, I, I think, in some ways we embrace them, uh, like you're saying, because we're used to everything being so automated and linear and perfect. Um, and just a lot of cool tests you could do within direct mail to try to reinforce that theme of, of humanization. The smeared ink, the off-centered type, the, those are two of my favorites uh, and, and a couple that I've, I've learned from you uh, over the last couple of years. Um, uh, just a couple other things that I, I wanted to highlight and um, anything else that you'd like to touch on. Uh, Deviation 8 is design your boss hates. Again, this is something I think which um, speaks right to the heart of a lot of uh, fundraisers experience. Um, can you just touch on that quick and, and uh, the idea that the competing image between things that your boss likes and making sure to try to appease that while um, designing creative and techniques that we know are going to be effective once they actually get into the mail. Um, this is amazing because it's, I feel like this is a highlight reel of how many different groups people kind of offend in one uh, conversation. <laughs> yes, next on the list is, you know, your bosses. Let's offend all the bosses out there. I, the, I think I want to make sure people understand that in direct response, this isn't about what I like. This isn't about what I think. This isn't about my opinion. I have to lean into and I have to know um, what works and I have to lean into that. I always say people to people as a designer, in when I do direct response, my favorite font in the whole world is Courier. If you're like, Courier, what? You know, actually, subjectively as a designer, are there other fonts I like, like Gotham is one I mentioned in the book. This is really one of my favorites. It's just a beautiful sans serif font, very, very timeless. But when I use courier in direct response, I almost always raise more money. And thus, it is one of my favorite fonts because when I do it and utilize it, I raise more money. And I just want to remind people that, again, the, a lot of stuff Jeff says it over, Jeff Brooks says it all the time, stuff like all the stuff we do seems counterintuitive. It seems ugly, like it's offensive to some people, it seems unprofessional. Um, our bosses don't like it. They don't like to feel like they're a part of this scene at all. We recently did an appeal for uh, Humane Society. Um, they were doing a case to raise, they had to raise a ton of money to build, build a brand new shelter. And the solution we proposed and pitched to them was really about, um, I, I go into information to explain what it was, but it was something very different than the professional case that was created by a professional fundraiser. We didn't want to use it because it really wasn't, wasn't approachable to normal donors. So we use like uh, illustrations in like the Richard Scary style, the busy town kind of thing, and use that as a, as a way to tell the story. And I, could, I, I was never told directly, but you got the sense organizationally hated it. I don't even know why they greenlit it, to be honest, but they did, they did let us do it. And it raised them almost 300% more than the spring appeal the year before because it was so engaging and different, but the boss still hated it. 
they won't they they won't even acknowledge, like they don't want to pretend it doesn't exist you know what i mean and we've had other things in the book like we've had bosses sort of go no we're not using this anymore it's too unprofessional or it's too ugly or it's too cheesy well i don't i don't really care because i know it works you know it allows me to use a different voice that can say something different than your boss who doesn't like any of this anyways will ever say and donors interact with it and give more money to it all the time and write back beautiful notes to these things you know so i don't I'm sorry if your boss doesn't like this stuff or some stuff that's in the book, but I'm not here to I'm not here to appease them. I'm here to do something that's going to be effective. Your donors are going to give to and feel really good about giving to. And what their opinion of that is, I don't I don't really much care. And so trying to work with people on how do you get around these environments where you got people saying, I don't like this color. I don't like the way this looks. This looks too something to me. This is feels wrong to me. Like all this like subjective. I'm sorry. It's a tough environment to work. In. Well, that's that's what I like about your approach, John. Is you're not afraid to say it how it is, and you're not afraid to to say something uh, in an age where um, even even in the nonprofit sector, when it comes to advice, uh, a lot of people try to walk the fence between being too committal. And what I take from that is, yes, uh, fundraisers um, should look for ideas with things that maybe intuitively that they that their boss is going to hate. I mean, that's that's something which has transcended fundraising with email, where you know some of the most effective techniques you could do are bright yellow highlights. And they look hideous and it looks unprofessional, but it calls attention to what you want to do, especially in a world where people pay attention to their emails for two seconds. And direct mail, very much the same thing. But also um, for leaders uh, to take a step back. And as you said, to understand this isn't about what I like, what I respond to. I mean, the anecdote that we've all heard at some point is uh, when uh, um, a, a CEO or a board member said, well, uh, I don't respond to mail. I don't like mail. And yeah. they, the extension of that is we don't want to bother our donors with mail. But that's that's to me the role of leaders is to take a step back from your own personal preferences and to understand this is about the donor and what they work and what they respond to. And maybe what they respond to isn't on brand, but you know, look, ugly often means approachable. It means easy to read and it means you can get the information quickly. And if you think about it through the prism of people and their busy lives and how much time do they really have to invest in your mail, no matter how much they like your organization and cause, I think it's a really healthy mindset um, the last thing I wanted to specifically ask you about, just because it's so important, is, is Deviation 11, and that's gratitude. And uh, in some ways, I'm, I'm surprised that gratitude is still considered a deviation. It's something we spend so much time talking about in the sector. Um, but do you still see that it's not something that's being done enough, that there's a lot of gratitude being left on the table when it comes to donor communication? And um, you talk about some of your ideas to try to close that gap with uh, donor relations. Yeah, I mean, I think that the bar is still extremely low. You know, like again, I will look through my mother-in-law's mail. I'll ask her on occasion. You know, tell me about the last time a charity did something different that just made you feel like, wow, I'm really glad I made that gift. You know, a month ago and stuff. And time and time again, she she has not yet come to me ever with something. Do you know what I mean? And I see what she gets. I see what she said in the context of gratitude, which is basically just a simple receipt with a, on behalf of the board of blah, blah, blah. We, you know, we appreciate, like, it's just like, so again, it's a checkbox, it's a process. I had, we had a colleague come up to us at a conference a couple of years ago and say, the only thing she didn't have to get approved was her thank you letters and gratitude. No one cared what she did with that. No one gave a shit. And, you know, and the organizations kind of sells on the back that these donors are like, you know, giving the rest of the program wasn't very good because they were overseeing it all. But it was actually because the donors are being thanked by this one woman in a very human, emotional, pure kind of way. So again, there's lots of rooms to include, lots of room to include, include gratitude in your program. Simple, simple ways, even appeal over appeal in your newsletters, in your grad, not any reports, in your gratitude reports, again, the way you tell stories. So again, even basic thank you letters. Here's finally, finally in this book is a checklist on what you have to put in a good thank you letter. If you can do that, you'll be well, well on your way. Um, gratitude, again, the bar is so low. Very few people are taking time. I, uh, I listened to your interview with Mike Dirksen, who's a very good friend of the show uh, on the Build Good podcast. Uh, and I believe in that conversation, um, 
you'd suggested, well, when you're writing a, a thank you, whether it's digital or, or printed, um, how hard is it to tell the donor what their donation is being put to work to do? Not just thank you for your gift, but to talk specifically about where it's going, what the impact it's, it, it's making, and um, not being so generic in your thank you. The other thing you talk a lot about still, it's, it's an age-old technique in direct mail, but it's something that um, definitely took a step back during the digital transition is the value of a print newsletter. I'm right there with you. I think um, adding a print newsletter is one of the one of the best things that any organization could do to improve their donor retention just because of what it implies. You're providing a value, you're telling stories about the organization's impact, and you're not asking for anything in return. And I know organizations who do include a reply card, and it's a phenomenal fundraising appeal on top of that. But just the fact that it's providing value gives you an opportunity to, to sell without selling. I, I do love print newsletters, and it's still... Um, it's still something we don't see a lot of in the industry. Um, do you see a resurgence there at all? Or are a lot of organizations still kind of scared off by the cost and commitment involved in producing a newsletter? God, I would love to think there would be some sort of, I mean, again, people deep six them through the years because they cost money. And again, someone subjectively goes, well, it's an easy thing next. So let's just do a digital e-news from here on out. Like without realizing the impact of, do, of doing that, a good newsletter can, like you said, it can ask for more support. It can show the impact of giving and can also say thank you to donor for things they made possible through this past year or this appeal that they gave to you back in January. So it really is all encompassing in terms of the, the best kind of vehicle for really good donor, donor comms. And so I've seen newsletters not only raise a lot more than actual one-off appeals, which really only should be doing ask. There's no real, there's no real reporting of impact because there's no impact yet. And it's not the same thing because there's no nothing to thank for yet. Um, a newsletter can raise a lot more money, especially a, a, a really good one, especially the lapsed. A lot of donors last because they just feel disconnected to the giving. So we've created new newsletters for organizations. We'll go back as far as we possibly can in the file and reactivate a whole bunch of donors who just were like, this organization just asked me for money all the time. I so, was at a I was at a major donor event uh, last year, and uh, I, you know, walk around. I, I like to ask people, you know, what brought them to the organization, what do they most enjoy about it. I probably talked to about twenty donors at that event. Nineteen of them said their favorite benefit was the newsletter. I love that monthly newsletter. I look forward to it every month. And these are major donors, so mm -hmm. you know, you can imagine the impact that they make with your twenty-five and fifty-dollar donors. Um, they also give you the opportunity to cross-sell other ways to give to the organization, donor-advised funds, uh, legacy gifts. Um, I agree they can be a very powerful way to, to raise money. I, almost, I don't go there right away when I talk about them because I think even just as a value add, they can improve your organization. But absolutely, I mean, it can be your most valuable house file programming uh, program uh, appeal if if done properly as well. Um, that's something I hope a lot of organizations do take to heart. Um, when thinking about investments uh, is is either going back to a print newsletter or testing one out to begin with, because it's just so powerful and still way too rare um, among nonprofits. Um, John, this has been great. Um, I, and I encourage everyone to, to pick up the book. Um, it's uh, Can you let uh, listeners know where they can get it? The, the easiest place probably, unfortunately, I hate to say it, is Amazon. Um, I've, I used to, I shot the book around, used a Canadian publisher very, very much on purpose. We also use a Canadian printer. The book that our Canadian printer is pumping out now, shipping into well around the world, is a, is a better version than when you get for Amazon, but some people want to order the book and get it in two days, and I get that. Um, so it is available on every Amazon around the world. Uh, just go up to your local Amazon, you'll find it there, also on Apple Books around the world is available. Um, but at least you can get a print version if you want out of out of the Amazon stuff. If you really want to go to my Canadian publisher and printer, uh, which would be amazing, if you go to agentsofgood.org slash creative, it will take you there to their, their website and you can order one. It'll take a little bit longer, um, but you're doing a good thing. So the decision, the decision is yours. Yeah, absolutely. Support publishers uh, yes. wherever they are who are supporting the nonprofit sector and encouraging this kind of work. Absolutely. Uh, I plan to do that myself uh, for certain. Um, John, uh, as we prepare to wrap things up here, the, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you was um, for fundraisers who are aspiring thought leaders who are sitting on 
ideas and and thinking about things that they they think might make for a good book. Um, can you give it share advice um, from your experience of what steps should they take if this is something that they think that they would like to do if they if they feel they have something really valuable to contribute to the conversation that should be put in print form? Well, you know, the sad part of this, Dan, is that actually, you know, the publishers, publishers in the world who are supporting our sector are diminishing, like, day by day. Um, I actually talked to my own publisher about this very thing. They, they offer, it's Civil, Civil Sector Press or Hillborn Publishing. They do offer a service for, for new authors that will support them with the editing and the writing and the design of their books and stuff like that. There needs to be more space. There needs to be more voices across our sector. You know, as as a to be completely um, transparent, I had to gut check myself as a a white male named John Lepp to like write a book where I'm like, there are already a lot of these people like me who've written books, and I didn't know if I should. I didn't. I had to check with people in my life whether I should write a book, but. They suggested that that we should, but we need to have everyone represented. And these are people we've never heard of. I meet some of those, learn the most brilliant things from people that you've never heard of. And they've got amazing ideas. There needs to be space for them to be sharing these things too at conferences, in books, ev everywhere. But unfortunately, publishing, it's because a lot of people are using things like Amazon. It's it's a it's a tough tough gig, man. So um, it takes a lot of work to get, especially if you you're not known. But blog, you can blog for free. Share your ideas online. You know, talk to people like you, Dan. Who, there's lots of podcasts. There's lots of opportunity. Create your own if you want. Like we've started our own little conferences as well up in here. If you see a space to to create something and put something into the world that maybe only twelve people want to come to attend to, do it. Like I always said to even my, my kids, even when we came into COVID, the world will always need artists. We always need people creating things. So if you have things to share and things you want to write about or talk about, there are spaces uh, for you to go out and find them. But if you're looking for the very big ones, it's very tough versus creating your own. So there's lots of ways we can publish books. There's lots of ways we can share our ideas. But we need people speaking up and speaking out from, from every background. Um, but again, in the context, to answer your question, in the context of our fundraising sector, day by day, there are very fewer uh, publishers actually uh, doing work in this space. But something I'm actively working on because I believe it in it so much that I want to make sure this continues on for at least my generation. Uh, so when my kids are writing publishing or fundraising books, there's there's someone there to publish them. You know? Yeah, I and I'm at, my hope is that um, companies and individuals who have the ability to do so that they there is so much great content in the industry that they think of uh, that as a way to give back, to provide value, to elevate voices, people who have something to say, um, because mm -hmm. I do think it is so powerful when you have something in printed form that that you wrote. But I agree. Um, I think the internet has been um, a liberating force for people to get their voices out there. And, and one of the things I've tried to do and continue to try to plan to do is, is building a platform for myself is, is showing that you can do this on your own um, in a grassroots way and make connections. And it is a long slog, um, but the benefits of thought leadership, of meeting new people, of providing value, it does have exponential benefits and it, it does work quicker than you think. So that's my hope also as well. And that's a message I try to put out there as a way of giving back is um, to put your voice out there, right? To start blogging, use the 1300 characters or whatever it is that LinkedIn gives you. That's, that's how I got started. Um, mm -hmm. Podcasts can be started with low or no cost. Um, and, and yes, it's a lot of work, but um, there's from, from people who are brand new to the industry um, to people who have been in it for decades, uh, there is so much collective knowledge that people are, are sitting on um, that I think fundraisers uh, would, would benefit from. And um, I hope people are inspired by what you've done here and um, maybe it inspires some to think about ways that they can contribute to the conversation as well. But we appreciate what you've done and your thought leadership and your contribution to the industry. And if listeners would like to get to know more about you or Agents of Good, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Um, Twitter, I'm easily findable on Twitter at John Lepp. Um, agentsofgood.org is our website. Um, and these days, doing a couple of these podcasts here and there and stuff sharing some of these ideas. Again, I'm sharing from a place of the more we all know, the better off we'll all be. 
Um, I think very much in the abundance uh, way that I, I'm giving a lot, a lot of information in this book that a lot of consultants are like, you shouldn't tell them all these things because no one will hire you. I'm not worried about people hiring me. I'm worried about people doing better work and stuff. So I'm very findable. Uh, for now, I'm very easily reachable. I do return emails pretty quickly. If you have questions, reach out uh, john at agentsofgood.org or tweet me or something, and um, I'll do my best to get back to you if you have questions. But I want to know what people think. If you do buy the book, tell me what you think. Tell me what stood out to you. Tell me what you learned from. Tell me what you want more of, um, and I'll do everything kind of get get that to you. So. I really appreciate it. everyone who's taking the time to pick up the book and read it. Wonderful. Go out, pick up Creative Deviations, whether it's digitally or in, in print form, and reach out to John. Let him know what you thought, think about it. Um, John, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, for all of the great ideas and, and discussion, we appreciate it. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with the book. And welcome back anytime. Thanks, Dan. Pre appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>